You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible reading this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are, are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amber. Well, the now former uh, Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, was well known for his Christianity. In the run-up to the 2019 election, he allowed the media to film him attending church in Sydney. So images of him went around the nation with his eyes closed and his hands raised. Uh, and, and this caused quite a stir. In 2021, as Prime Minister, he spoke at the annual conference of the Australian Christian Churches Denomination, where he spoke of the evil one, the devil, working to subvert society through social media and revealing that he had laid on hands with people uh, in disaster relief centres, praying for them. This really split the electorate. Many people hated it. They derided his arm movements as like some Hitler salute, they said, and labelled his practice of laying on hands as creepy. Kevin Rudd, a self-proclaimed Christian, lambasted him, saying that Morrison apparently believes he's not, the only, not only the chief minister of the Commonwealth, but also its chief priest, declaring that this is a fundamental breach of the secularity of our political institutions. And yet other people loved it. Some analysts suggested that ScoMo's uh, Christian faith swung the 2019 election, noting that uh, some of the biggest successes in, for the Liberal Party were in seats that were more devout, had more Christians. Congratulations, Prime Minister, wrote one voter on his Facebook page. We've been longing for a dedicated Christian leader here in Australia, and we finally have one. Can't wait to see how God is going to work in and through you in this term. Three years on, however, many suggested that his faith cost him the election, but perhaps not in the way you might think. You see, there was a popular conception that Morrison had fallen short of his profession, that his policies and his behaviour didn't match up with what they expected of a Christian. Over time, he was characterised as lacking sensitivity on things like gender equality or the safety of women in Parliament, or lacking compassion when it came to refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, his policies raised ire from both sides of politics. On the left, progressives didn't feel like, felt like he didn't do enough about climate change. Well, on the right, conservatives believed that Morrison and the Liberals had not done enough to protect religious freedom. Uh, Tim Costello said after the uh, election defeat, Morrison's personal unpopularity was not because he was a very public Christian, but more due to the perception that his policies did not adequately reflect 
the Christian faith. Most damning of all were accusations that he was dishonest and insincere. In March this year, uh, one fellow Liberal Party politician accused Morrison of lacking a moral compass and having no conscience. She suggested that he was manipulative and two-faced and used his so-called faith as a marketing advantage. And yet I kept finding this kind of paradox, this complexity here. See, many of the people who criticised Morrison for his religion also ridiculed him for his failure to live up to it. So, for instance, people said that his faith should not shape his politics and they would have balked at the suggestion that he was getting ideas from God's word and yet those same people argued that he was a hypocrite when his policies didn't match up to Christianity. It felt like it was just impossible. How can you be a Christian in politics? Should Christians be in politics? Should their faith shape their policy making? Should God's people seek political power or should we avoid it? Should the Bible shape society and policy or should public life be entirely free of religion? To put it simply, what is the relationship? What should be the relationship between church and state? Now, if you remember from what we discussed last week, you'll recognise that this is quite a complex question. Last week we thought about the story of politics. We really learned that politics is all about power and all power belongs with God. It resides with him. He is the creator. He is the sovereign Lord of all things and yet he delegates power to humanity. Adam and Eve were given dominion over creation. Humanity was given dominion over creation. So in a very real way, God rules the world through humans and he's equipped us for that. And yet we also see that humanity has rebelled against God. So we're all fighting for power. God still allows us to, to have power. He still continues to rule the world through us. And yet now it's this horrible fight. You against me, left against right, my party against your party. All of us fighting for the power to shape the world as we want it. And into all of this, Jesus comes. In Christ, God came to re-establish his kingdom and his rule, and yet he does it in a very surprising way. He doesn't just overthrow the rebellious. He continues to rule through us, but he comes instead to restore us. He dies for us and rises to new life, and then we respond to that in faith and humility. We repent and submit to his rule, and he forgives us. And we follow him. And in so doing, he's establishing a kingdom, a kingdom that is both now and not yet. It's now in his people as a spiritual reality, but it's not yet a physical reality. Christ will one day return and establish himself physically. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all things. But that hasn't happened just yet. God begins his reign in his people as we submit to him. And then he extends that reign through us it was to go out into the world to disciple people and to help them submit to the true king. We are then a kind of alternative society as God's people, an outpost or an embassy of heaven, a preview of the future. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we give our lives to make that a reality. In the very real sense then, the church is a political entity. We're here to transform society. What does that mean practically? How does the church carry out this work? Do we, do we seek this power? Do we set up political parties? 
You know, you're looking through the, the Senate voting form and there's all those random parties like the Legalised Cannabis Party, the Informed Medical Options Party, and then there's City on a Hill. Is, is that what we're supposed to be doing? Or should we hold back as an alternative society? Should we be removed from politics? How do we manage the paradoxes of church and state? Now, this dynamic has actually changed throughout time depending on historical circumstances and cultural context. And I suggest that there's five main experiences of this. You can actually find that uh, on the website. You'll see the sermon notes. I've kind of put those five main experiences. And today I want to go through each of these and unpack them theologically. What does the Bible say about those different experiences and how we should respond to that? Now, just a word on Bible readings, by the way, in this series. Normally, if you come here, you'll notice that we go through a passage verse by verse and we pick it apart. Uh, that doesn't quite fit so well in this series because we're doing big themes and so we're kind of grabbing verses from all over the place, but we're still trying to submit to God's Word as we do that. Okay, so we've got these five different sort of options and experiences. The first one is the state versus the church. This is where the state opposes the church wanting to silence or destroy it. You can see this wherever the church is persecuted by the state. Think of Rome opposing the early church. Think of communist countries during the Cold War. or Think of Islamic countries today where sharing the gospel is illegal. This is clearly contrary to God's vision for government. Uh, we, see, we saw last week that God sets up government before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Humanity had dominion. And even though it was wrong for humans to rebel against him, God continues to give us that dominion. But there are limits. When God, uh, when God sees people resist him in this kind of overt way, he takes it personally. Think of what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he would judge those who oppress his people. 2 Thessalonians 1, God considers it just to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's worth asking, though, why would the state oppose the church? I think it's ultimately because Jesus confronts the state's power. We saw last week that politics is all about power. We all have this vision of what the world should look like, and we're, we're trying to get this. But then God's people challenge this in the most subtle but devastating way. You see, we don't challenge it directly. We, we don't come up as revolutionaries seeking to overthrow the government. In fact, we're clearly instructed not to do that. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. God tells us we should honour those in government. And yet there are times where God's people are told they must not, that we cannot obey the state. In Acts 4, for instance, the religious officials try to silence the apostles, but they refuse to be silenced. And they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. They're saying, we, we want to respect you, but we, we respect God more than that. We have to do what God says. So God's people will obey the government unless the government asks them to disobey God. And that means we recognise a higher authority. That's what we see here in our reading too. The Jews come to Jesus with a question, a question which they think will reveal where his loyalties lie. So if he says, you should pay the tax, then he's kowtowing to the Romans. And if he says, don't pay the tax, then he's a revolutionary trying to overthrow the Romans. But his answer avoids both of them, rendered to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He's saying there are things that Caesar is owed, so you should give them that, like taxes, and yet at the same time there are things that Caesar has no right to. He has authority, but that authority is limited. As Timothy Keller says, what Jesus Christ is saying is you may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is ultimate allegiance. And so Jesus is both honouring and frustrating the earthly powers. He's marking out the limits of human power. We obey the king, but also we obey the king of kings, which means that no matter how big an earthly king is, there's always someone bigger. And that infuriates the proud. Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, is a great military leader. And he said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. You sense the envy in his words there. He wishes he had that kind of power. The powerful want more power. They want total control, absolute power. In fact, the Roman emperors demanded worship as gods. But with Jesus, that's never possible. He is the one true God. And so that's why ultimately the state opposes the church because we remind the human powers of their powerlessness. Well, sometimes this leads to open persecution and opposition, but other times it's more subtle. There have been times throughout history when the state has tried to control the church, seeking not so much to destroy the church, but to rule through it, using it to validate and empower their political program. I I would call this the second thing, the state church. The best example of this is probably in Germany during the Nazi era with the German evangelical church. Germany has a very strong Christian heritage. Some of the great figures of the Protestant Reformation, such as Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and Martin Bucer, came from Germany. And so as Hitler and the Nazis rose to power in the 1930s, it was clear to them that they needed religious backing for their program of uh, anti-Semitic Aryanism and uh, eugenics. And so they set up what was called the Reich Church. So basically, if you wanted to uh, lead a church in Germany, you had to submit and be a part of this Reich Church. I think there was an oath of loyalty and so on, and you you couldn't uh, oppose Hitler. Some, of course, did oppose Hitler, such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Niemeyer, but many people went along with it. And so the state ruled through the church. It kind of had this validation for what it was doing. Of course, this was just a terrible tragedy, and it completely destroyed the integrity and the witness of the church. I mean, how can you claim to have any moral authority when you're permitting or encouraging the things that were happening in Germany? Of course, it would have taken immense courage for more people to stand up to the state, but that's what was required. You see, when the church is being pressured by the state, we need to resist that, which is hard to do because we're tempted towards self-preservation. So we decide, oh, we'll just compromise with that because then we'll be able to stay alive, we'll be able to stay afloat, we'll be able to keep doing what we're trying to do. But once you start doing that, you lose everything. The church might survive physically, but it doesn't spiritually. 
It's lost its integrity, its authenticity. It's chosen its king, and that king is not Christ. And so even if the state doesn't directly destroy the church, it's completely removed its authority, and the church is complicit in its own destruction. It's interesting to compare the example of the German church with the Chinese church of today. Under communist rule, Christianity is not officially banned, but it is tightly controlled. There's this officially sanctioned church called the Three Self Patriotic Movement, and anyone within that must be very careful not to speak against the government. Uh, Many refuse, though, to be constrained by this, and so there's been all of these uh, underground churches that have sprung up, and they've had incredible success as they've follow God faithfully. In fact, it's said that there's probably 100 million believers in the country of China now, which is more people than in the Communist Party. And so you see that the church is actually bigger than the state. Their example should act as an inspiration for us. You see, I think there are signs today of the state trying to control the church, encroaching into matters of faith, In Victoria, for instance, it's now illegal to pray with someone about resisting same-sex attraction, even if that person requests the prayer. There's moves afoot, too, to change employment rules for religious organisations. Currently, uh, a Christian school can restrict their employment to just Christians who share the ethos of the school, but now that's under threat and those privileges may soon be taken away. They'll be sued for discrimination. I mean, you can imagine where this could lead. I think we can anticipate, for instance, that government funding for faith-based organisations could be withdrawn or tied to uh, whether or not we're willing to embrace certain dogmas. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a law introduced into Victorian Parliament that would cut the funding of any hospital that refused to do abortions. These are attempts then, I think, of the state trying to control the church. And it will be tempting for us to compromise, to go along with it, just keep our heads down and to choose self-preservation. And you can imagine how we can justify it. If we just accept this, they'll leave us alone and we'll be able to do our thing. But they won't leave us alone. If we allow the state to control the church, we will cease to be the church. Well, when we see things like this, the state opposing or trying to control the church, it'd be easy for us to want to flip it the other way, for us to have political power. And that leads to the third model on the list, the church state. This is a theocracy where the church rules through the state, controlling the governing powers. In a sense, this is what the Israelites had in the Old Testament. They were set up as a nation following God's laws. Uh, Their kings were appointed by God. Uh, This was also seen uh, during the early years of uh, the first few hundred years uh, after Jesus. So in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and not long after Christianity became the official state religion, everyone was expected to be a Christian. And this ultimately led to the long age of Christendom where emperors and kings were seen as subject to the church. Underpinning this was something called the Galatian Doctrine. There's one for Scrabble. Uh, This was the idea that Christ gave two swords to the church, a spiritual sword and a physical sword. And the, the Pope retained the sword of spiritual authority, but then he gave the state 
this physical sword, so to speak. And still, though, it was clear that the Pope was in charge. The king had this authority delegated to them by the Pope. Now, at first glance, the church state might seem kind of cool. Now, first of all, it protects the church from the kind of opposition and persecution that happens when the state opposes the church. I mean, when Constantine came to faith, it must have been an incredible relief for God's people. For two and a half centuries, they'd been persecuted and killed. There's literally people in your church who've lost an arm because they've been persecuted, right? And now the emperor has become a Christian and you're safe. It's all going to be okay. And then secondly, you can shape the society according to Christian values. As Christians, we serve God as Lord and we believe his laws reflect uh, what's best for humanity. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise or simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So it follows quite naturally that if you have power, you want to see laws that reflect God's good character. However, there's some significant issues with this. For a start, it, it blurs the identity of the church, of what it means to be God's people. You see, once the church took over the state, they said that everyone was a Christian. Everyone was baptised. Everyone was identified within the church. So there was no delineation between Christian and non-Christian. But that doesn't fit with what the Bible says about our identity. Because Christianity is something supernatural. It's a radical change of the heart and the mind and, and the will. Where we go from rebelling against God to submitting to him humbly and joyfully. And that's only possible through God's direct and supernatural intervention. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? Unless one is born again, born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when you say that everyone within your state is a Christian, you undermine that. You make Christianity purely a, a cultural thing. It's just part of your citizenship. It's just there on your driver's license. And then perhaps even worse, you start to force people into Christianity, even if they're not willing. So in a church state, you might have to be a Christian to get a job, but your faith isn't real. It's just legalistic. It's just compliance. People are doing it simply because they have to. And then it inspires a kind of resentment and frustration and, and bitterness, particularly when well-meaning Christians exceed God's laws. I think you see this in America in the 1920s, uh, where church figures persuaded the state to ban the production and sale of alcohol. Uh, prohibition, it's called. Now, this exceeds the commands of Scripture, and it causes immense resentment. And of course, a whole bunch of other problems like it, an uncontrolled black market. So it kind of backfired. And so Ralph Ng, the one-time dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, says it's notorious that political Christianity excites bitter hatred against the church, such as is almost unknown in countries where there is no such organisation. And so he concludes that the choice for the church is between political power and moral influence. Either we embrace our identity as the church we try to be the state and lose our identity as the church. Okay, 
It's not looking great so far. I mean, given the, the pressure against churches and the temptation for churches to take power for themselves, some people advocate that we should just withdraw from everything entirely, withdraw from uh, the public square. And I've termed this approach the church against the state. The stereotypical example of this would be the Amish or the, the Mennonites. They've withdrawn from secular society to create their own separate place, their own separate community, free of secular influence and to live more closely under the rule of God. Within this Christian community, you have this really strong kingdom ethic. So there's really strong families, there's care for the poor, there's harmony between classes and, and races. And the hope is that this community can then point to the coming reality of Jesus. It becomes attractive to those who are outside. Now, it's easy for us to have a bit of a cliched image about this. So imagine it's just uh, bonnets and horse-drawn buggies. But uh, it's important to note that there's actually a tradition of really robust scholarship around this. So if you're interested, you could read uh, The Politics of Jesus by a guy called John Howard Yoder, who <laughs> is, it just has the most amazing crossover uh, name between Australian politics and Star Wars. So you could, you could read that. Uh, but another more recent and sort of more moderate example comes from a book called The Benedict Option, written by Rod Dreyer. In it, he argues that politics today is just completely gone. It's just stuffed. And so it's time for Christians to voluntarily remove themselves from that and to create a, a separate community within the nation where biblical values are upheld. So he says the church can preserve a culture, an earthly foretaste of the coming kingdom, only if it guards its borders, not allowing the values and ideals of the fallen world to creep inside the walls of a redeemed counterculture. It's important to note that unlike the Amish, Drea doesn't think we should all just go off to some other place, some other village. No, no, we're still within the society, but we have our own separate uh, institutions within the society. So we have our own Christian schools and Christian churches, Christian businesses, Christian hospitals. And so the goal here is to not just serve Christians, but the world, to show a better way and to draw people to that. And so he says, for those who embrace this, we're building a better future, not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us. It's not about building a gated community, but about serving the world, inviting them into this. I have to say that I have some sympathy for this. First of all, it might be necessary to protect our consciences. As the state continues to encroach on our uh, space, this might be the only way that we can preserve our convictions. It's also a really important way for us to prepare the next generation for living in the culture. It's also exciting to think about the kind of society that could be built where Christian ethics are given uh, full sway, they're, on, they're in full display. I mean, I think the church in Acts 2 has a sense of this. Uh, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So that, that they're coming together. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Everyone sees this and is impressed. They have favour with all of the people and there's kingdom fruit. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there is a sense in which they have their own little community and yet it's still open to the rest of the world so they can see it. And if that's what Drea has in mind, then that's pretty cool. And yet why I think 
he's urging us to withdraw, I think this plays into the hands of those who want us to withdraw. You see, there's this concerted effort to push Christians out of politics. You'll often hear people say Australia is a secular country, so that means that we should have no religion in our politics. This is the whole thing with SCOMA. People didn't want him to bring that into politics. I was reading an article in The Age. When is it appropriate for him to use the Bible as a policy handbook? I'd argue never. So people are trying to get rid of that. And these constant efforts to secularise everything. In Victoria at the moment, they're debating re removing the Lord's Prayer being recited before every day of Parliament. Uh, in America, there's efforts, there's to remove uh, ten the Ten Commandments. You know, it might be up in a courthouse. Oh, I've got to take that down. Uh, in a state school in America, there was a, a student speaking at a high school graduation and she had her microphone muted because she mentioned Jesus. Uh, there's this kind of idea that we can't have Christ anywhere in public society. A lot of it is just absurd, kind of obsessive attempt to remove every kind of vestige of Christianity from public life. And there's a kind of um, fervour and zealotry to this that feels almost religious, which of course it is. See, I think this whole no religion thing is actually a bit of a Trojan horse for a different religion, the religion of secularism, the religion of no religion. That might sound a bit weird, so let me explain. You remember last week that I suggested that all of us worship something. Our gods are the things that we look to for meaning and purpose. Everyone does this, even atheists. They might not realise it, they certainly won't acknowledge it, but it's there. And these gods drive our politics. Behind every politician, every political party, every political ideology is a worldview. And behind that worldview is a God, something that validates our desires and empowers us to pursue them. Jonathan Lehman writes that the story of politics is a story of how you and I arrange everything to get what we most want, to get what we worship. Every one of us employs whatever power we possess, including the mechanisms of the state, to gain whatever we find most worthy of worship. And so he says politics serves worship and governments serve gods. That means then that it's not possible for politics to be a religion-free zone. Every state is religious because it's shaped by our gods. And that's true whether those gods are Hinduism, or Buddhism, communism, capitalism or secularism. See, I think secularism is the god of, of self, of humanity. It's the belief that we don't need God that we are self-sufficient. This is, of course, the first thing that tempted Adam and Eve way back in Genesis 3. You will be like God. You, you can rule the world without God instead of God. And so that's ultimately, that, that temptation is still alive today and attractive to us. And that's why people want to remove Christianity from the public square. See, the, the Bible teaches that we aren't our own gods, that we do need God, that he's our creator, and it calls us to worship only him and to submit to him. But people don't like that. And so they resist that. Even when Jesus came in the flesh, he was resisted and destroyed. They wanted to thrust him 
from the public square because humans want to silence God, avoid God, get rid of God. That's why the secularist tries to drive God out of politics so that their own God can rule unchallenged. And so we can't just allow that to happen. If politics is the battleground of the gods, as I said last week, then we can't just withdraw from politics. If we vacate the public square, then something else will fill it. There's no vacuum. Something will go in there. And more than that, we as God's people have this conviction that God's way is best, that he's our creator, that he knows what's best for us, and that this is a, a public truth that benefits everybody. And so you might say that we are in the world, but not of the world, and yet for the world. So we're in the world, we're, we're right in amongst it, we're in the society, we're not of it, we're not worshipping power, we're not believing that we are the Saviour. We're pointing to the true Saviour, Jesus, and that means we're for the world. We want the best thing for the world, God's truth. So I think that means that we need to navigate the tensions between the church and the state, and that leads to our fifth model. Basically, we have this idea that the church and the state exist within the society together, each with their own distinct responsibilities. The state's role is to provide a meaningful space for living, that's what we heard last week, to ensure justice, to protect its citizens, to provide the best environment for a society to flourish. And then the church's role is to represent Christ to the world, to declare the gospel of Christ and to live it out, discipling people to know and to love Jesus. The two then are, are separate, and you're not, yet they're not hermetically sealed off from each other. They do interact with each other, have some kind of relationship. Uh, something I found helpful in thinking about this is the concept of sphere sovereignty. This is the idea that there's many spheres in society, that there's the church, there's the state, there's the family, there's business, there's academia. God is sovereign over all of these and he's established them all for the, the right ordering of society and then he delegates authority into each one. So parents rule the family. Pastors and elders oversee the church. Kings and politicians lead the state. And that authority should be respected. No one sphere should try to rule all the others. So the church shouldn't rule the state and the state shouldn't rule the church. I think we see this again in our Bible reading. Wayne Grudem says, Jesus shows that there are to be two different spheres of influence, one for the government and one for the religious life of the people of God. There's some things that belong to the government, the things that are Caesar's, and there's other things that belong in someone's religious life, the things that are God's. And the civil government shouldn't try to control that. Okay, so each sphere has its own identity, its own importance, its own purpose, and yet of course they're going to overlap at times, aren't they? See, this is where it gets tricky is how much overlap should there be? Of course, there has to be some overlap. When we build church buildings, we should abide by the building standards set down by the state. It's appropriate for the state to uh, establish safe ministry protocols, for instance, but there has to be limits. We can't be mandated about what we believe. The state shouldn't intrude on what we teach. So how do you have this overlap 
without losing distinction. Well, interestingly, we actually have a model for it in the Australian Constitution. Section 116 states that the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. That's, that's the, the wording there. It's a bit boring. But what it's trying to say is that politics is a place for all people in Australia, Christian and non-Christian, religious and secular, people from any religion and no religion. And yet it's also setting the limits for how that works. The state must recognise that it, it has a limit. It cannot prohibit the free exercise of any religion. It can't tell us what we must think. And yet the church has to recognise its own limits. We cannot impose any religious observance. We can't try to force Christianity on anyone. We can't rule through the state. And this sets up this separation of church and state and actually gives us some good parameters for how we think about this. We have the freedom to get involved. Secular means freedom for religion, not freedom from religion. And so we can bring Christian values into public life. This is a public truth that improves the world. We believe that in Christ we live and move and have our being, that all things were created through him and for him. And so we want people to know this. We want the creator to be seen because we believe that his, his ways will lead to life. We're in the world, not of the world, but for the world. And we also recognise the complex dynamics of the kingdom of God. It's now in us because we're submitting to his reign, but it's not yet everywhere because not everyone has submitted to him. And so even as we step into the world, we're trying to tell the gospel. So the laws that we pursue are, are, are laws that reflect the gospel, that prioritise compassion and justice, that make it clear that there is standards that God has, that looks for life and well-being and resists anything that would destroy those things. And yet we recognise that the gospel isn't just something legislated, it's something that has to be believed. So even as we pursue a good, positive influence in the culture around us, we recognise that God has to do the work of changing people's hearts, that we need a supernatural intervention, and we point to him as we do that. Well, there's been a lot of stuff that we've gone through today. And as we finish up, I just want to think practically about what this could mean for us in our lives. What does it mean, first of all, as individuals? I think it means that we should be good, engaged citizens. It's good for us to care about politics, to get informed, to know who you're voting for, to know why you're voting for them. It's good to engage with your local MP, to pray for them, to write to them, speak to them. You know, the, I contacted numerous politicians last year in the lead-up to uh, during debates on some of the more controversial laws that have come in. It's good for us also to get involved. There's lots of ways you can do that. You could join a, a lobby group, perhaps something like the Australian Christian Lobby. It doesn't have to be a Christian thing, I don't think. You could join a local political action group, political party, participate in a trade union, and maybe one day 
You'll even run for office. Of course, that might be quite intimidating or overwhelming, but there's an enormous amount of good that God's people can do in politics, that God's people have done in politics. I mean, in the Bible, think of Joseph in Egypt. Think of Daniel and Nehemiah. And then throughout history, William Wilberforce led the campaign to abolish slavery. In our own local context, John Anderson and Mike Baird have done a lot of good over the last 20, 30 years. These were people who brought God's wisdom into the public square. And together, Christians, God's people, have had a profound impact right through history. See, it was because of Christians that the first laws uh, banning infanticide and child abandonment came into the Roman Empire, 374 AD. It was Christians that outlawed the gladiator battles to the death. It was Christians that brought through prison reforms, segregated men and women in prisons. It was Christians who helped stop human sacrifice in many nations or outlawed pedophilia and polygamy, who granted property rights to women, prohibited the burning alive of widows in India, 150 years ago, or the binding of women's feet in China 100 years ago. This is the influence of Christians in politics. It's not mandating Christianity, but it is showing that there is this truth that can shape the world around us, that reflects the goodness of our Creator. A really great example of this is a bloke called Abraham Kuyper. He was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, at the start of the 20th century, and he had this strong sense of God as the sovereign ruler over all things. You might have heard his quote, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He really had this strong belief that God was totally in charge. And he believed that God had something to say to all people, that Christianity was this kind of life system it was helpful for everyone and to order society. And yet it's interesting to see how he went about it. You see, he and his party didn't just bring in uh, laws that coerced people to become Christians. They didn't try to become a church state. Instead, he encouraged people, Christians, to worship God wherever they were in every sphere and to do the work of the church both collectively and individually. He used to say that it was the role of the church institutional here to preach the gospel, baptise people, and then the church organic, discipled people, discipled individuals would go out and show Christ in every aspect of their life. And in so doing, they would build a Christian nation, not where every person was a Christian, but where Christians had such a profound and positive influence on the world that had changed everything around them. He, he wrote terms such as a Christian nation or a Christian country, a Christian society, do not mean that, that such a nation consists mainly of regenerate Christian persons or that such a society has already been made into the kingdom of heaven. The adjective Christian therefore says nothing about the spiritual state of the inhabitants of the country, but only witnesses to the fact that public opinion, the general mindset, the ruling ideas, the moral norms, the laws and customs, clearly demonstrate the influence of the Christian faith. 
And so he says this influence leads to the abolition of slavery, to the improved position of women, to the maintenance of public virtue, to respect for the Sabbath, compassion for the poor, consistent regard for the ideal over the material. The elevation, he says, of all, of all of that is human from its sunken state to a higher standpoint. As another writer puts it, the goal is not the Christian conquest of society, but sustained, faithful and distinctive political engagement. That's a vision that inspires me. But just as we finally end up, there's one other thing that we can do, and that is to be the church. See, last week I suggested that we are an embassy of heaven, a preview of what is to come. We are where the kingdom is right now, where Christ's reign begins. So we show the politics of Christ's kingdom, that Christ is in charge and we're submitting to that. We're seeking and we're following his wisdom. We're the family of God living as his people. And we want everyone to see this. We want to be such so beautiful that we attract attention, not for our glory but for his. And so we experience and we express the gospel. We show how submission to Christ brings life and freedom. We show how the lordship of Christ brings all of us together, all kinds of people, Jew and Greek, slave and free, men and women, people from every nation and tribe, people and tongue. We show how Christ keeps us together, inspiring humility and gentleness. We confess our sins and are forgiven. We prize peace and reconciliation. Then we show how his love is poured out from him to us and from us to the world. We become truly a city on a hill, shining our light to the world around us so that they see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for the way that you have held and led and directed your people through every age of the world in good times and difficult times. Lord, it's, a lot of this stuff feels a bit philosophical. We ask, Lord, that you will help us see uh, the life-giving truth within it, that you have a vision for us as your people. We're not here to uh, coerce people into faith, but we are here to show your greatness, your goodness, your love. Help us to do that. Help us to do that privately as individuals, to think wisely about what that looks like. Help us to do that collectively as your people in the world and help us to do it as the church. May this place be a place that shows the goodness of your kingdom, the wisdom and life-giving nature of your rule. May people see it and praise our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.